On the podcast today, I'm speaking with Vicky Lay. Vicky is a partner and head of impact at Artesian Alternative Investments. She's been a central architect of the firm's embracing of their impact potential, and she's engaged with the startups they invest in. You see, Vicky was a founder herself. She knows the heartache of the valley of death and the thrill of securing funding. And it's that skill set that she applies to mentoring founders. They're helping them see their own potential and to ditching their limiting beliefs. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Artesian are specialist investors in two broad areas, fixed income and venture capital. And of course, these are two asset classes that are ideally suited to an impact approach. Vicky explains some of the nuance of their strategies as well as how they've managed to engage with institutional investors like super funds. I also took the opportunity to dig a little deeper into the mindset that Vicky brings to impact investing and there's a really valuable section in there where Vicky maps out a key piece of advice that she offers to her CEO coaching clients to help them push past imposter syndrome and perform at their peak. Well, let's get into it. I'll let Vicky tell you all about it. As per usual, you can get all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you're feeling positive about it all, why not leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? Because that's the best way to get the show out to more people. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Vicky Lay. Here we go. Vicky, so great to have you on. Thank you for giving me some time. Thank you for having me. Look, it's a pleasure. Now, you're based in the New York office of Artesian, but you've been in Sydney for the past little while. So tell us, where's home? Home is in two regions for for me. So I, I find I always try to go where I can make the most impact. And at present, it means I'm spending half my time in the US and half my time in the Asia Pac region. Very good. And now look, Artesian, of course does a lot of different things and at its core it invests in fixed income and venture capital and then of course that's a platform that's really well suited to impact investing and the firm now has a whole suite of impact strategies but I'm keen to to understand that journey what was the journey to get Artesian there? I would say that Artesian has always had impact and ESG at its core. We may not have caught it that in the early days, but that's been a very natural progression into products, into collateral, into our brand story that goes out there. So I would say the journey sort of started with us just trying to do things that were, you know, had positive externalities and had positive impacts for uh, the world. And that naturally translated into, I guess, what we've become today, which is a impact investment fund. And and so we have these sort of impact strategies, we have impact measurement, you know, the broader sort of management practice. Are you finding that sort of process is now well embedded across sort of all of the funds? Is it something that's, that's found its way across all of the elements? Yeah, definitely. I, I would say that it started 
just by nature of asset class in our public markets fixed income business. As you know, ESG integration and ESG risk analysis is very well adopted and mainstreamed in that part of the, the market. And so for us being a barbell business with you know one foot in fixed income and one foot in venture capital, it was very easy for us to then translate what we were learning and what we were implementing in public markets and fixed income and adapt that and translate that across into venture capital, which is, I'm sure you know, uh, is sort of new and nascent in terms of ESG integration and risk assessment at the early stage. I think that's an interesting one where ESG works so well in public markets, but the benefit in, in VC is that you have such control, right? You're so close to the organization, you know, often you're on the board, you have a large equity stake a lot of the time. So I guess it really comes down to different levers of influence. And you've obviously got a lot of experience in VC from startups, right? Having worked in your own startup and then moving to the other side of the table and becoming an investor. So how do you see that relationship between the investor and the business founders? And in terms of sort of trying to influence and drive these concepts of impact and maybe trying to steer them towards, you know, different ways of operating. That's actually a, such a great question. And I know you've been thinking about this in multiple layers, which when I think about what is the role of an investor for an early stage company, it goes back to governance and what governance means at the incubation or early stages of a startup there's actually a quite a fair bit of handholding, especially if you're first ticket in, first money in. And so, you know, as the company grows and scales and you continue to provide that capital and that funding, what you can do as an investor in terms of handholding from the ESG perspective is to actually influence how that capital is deployed, what is prioritized within the business in the founder's mindset, but also in the budget. And hopefully by doing so, you're providing the seed for our foundation with ESG and impact at its core so that when that company does scale and hopefully become that public company one day, you know, the roots have been laid by the work that you've done as an investor from the engagement perspective. Mm. And is there the same kind of acceptance and, and absorbing of these wise words and these, these recommendations from that VC level, you know, when you then look at a corporate debt kind of structure where you then want to engage and you want to have conversations and you want to make your sort of voice heard, you know, do you see them as sort of drastically different forms of engagement or are there, are there similarities? They're quite different and similar at the same time. So let me explain what I mean by that. So they're similar in the blanket approaches. For example, within engagement, you know, you can actually work directly with the companies, you can help move industries forward, you can engage with governments on policy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think as strategies, they are the same in any asset class. However, the way that translates for early stage private markets and public markets is very different because of transparency. So uh, with corporate companies, they are mandated by investors, by public market participation in that they must actually disclose how they're actually applying ESG lenses or where their budgets are going in terms of DNI or you know environmental policies or environmental impact packs on their supply chain, et cetera. So it's much easier to have the conversation with an issuer who is engaged and has a monetary motivation to speak with you, right? 
for a founder, you got to understand these companies, they're so embryonic that some of them may not even have governance structures in place. So the conversation is quite 101. It's talking about how will you be thinking about your board and decision-making there, setting up HR systems from scratch, thinking about supply chain. And some founders, they, they haven't even heard of particular policies or they may not even know which SDG they sit under. So there's a lot of teaching and sharing templates and knowledge with companies at that early stage in the same way that you would as a board member, as an investor with governance. So that's why I think it's the same in that the approaches are generally similar, but the way they translate just based on the realities of the asset class will naturally differ. Yeah, good stuff. Narrowing down to one of the well-known artesian uh, VC strategies, and that's the clean energy seed fund. This is one that, that first highlighted artesian's work to myself and of course closely related to the CEFC, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Can you sort of give us a bit of an overview of, of the VC approach there? You know, the kinds of businesses you're identifying and is it the bulk of the startups Australian or is it offshore? I'd love to get some more insights there. Absolutely. So the Clean Energy Finance Corporation approached us with a goal to increase investment in Australia's transition to lower emissions. And how that has turned into a strategy is the companies that we look at are mainly Australian just because, you know, it's a government-backed organization. It must contribute to the country's economic growth. And so the areas that we look at include things like agriculture, energy generation and storage, infrastructure and property, transport and waste. You know, as of 31, you know, December last year, we did about 43 investments in Australian startups developing software, hardware, as well as business models applicable to the clean energy market in the Australian market. Amazing. You know, it's so detached from sort of the broader political issues we have in terms of, you know, the incumbent fossil fuel industries. And then to hear about you know, all of those exciting innovations, they, they seem worlds away, but I think that's kind of the paradox of Australia, that we're burning both ends of that candle. How do you see this shifting? Obviously, these are small startups, they're small teams, uh, they're growing, there's lots of dynamism in between they're doing, but how does that link up to the broader systemic change in Australia and I guess sort of the, the vision that, that you hope to be investing towards? Well, the vision that we're looking to invest towards is trying to close that you know, multi-trillion dollar climate infrastructure gap, which is growing every year, unfortunately. And the, what we really need to do is to invest into solutions that can try to tackle this problem at scale, because as we know, it's one of the biggest crises and one of the biggest uh, risk categories for us as a species, for our planet. And so Artesian has always thought about how do we bend our barbell business to try to come up with some kind of impact solution. And for us, the premise behind Clean Energy Seed Fund was the tip of the iceberg for us. We wanted to move capital at scale. And that's evidenced through other funds that we've launched with a climate finance angle. For example, we um, just launched the High Impact Green Bond Fund, which brings together both green bonds as well as venture debt to try to tackle this from a different angle and perspective. We've also launched the Green and Sustainable Bond Fund in Australia, which is purely green bonds. So it's something that we're thinking deeply about. And we're also looking at it from multiple angles to try to close this or help to close this big climate infrastructure gap to get us to where we need to be as a world. 
Yeah, and, and the focus in a lot of these funds is, is institutional investors. You know, it's one of the few approaches that, that has deal sizes sort of big enough. How are you seeing the concept of impact as part of that investment calculus being received by big investors like super funds? The appetite is quite strong. I, I would say it's increasing. We are seeing commitments to ESG strategies, specifically climate and gender, are becoming increasingly attractive to these large super funds because there is a bottom-up drive from their members. There's a shift at the global level where millennials are, there's a big transition of wealth. And we know that for millennials, they care deeply about conscious capitalism. They care deeply about, you know, making sure their dollars are being invested with a positive outcome. And that's naturally translating to where the super funds who manage, you know, their money and this next generation of wealth that's coming, where their marketing is going, where their focus is in terms of looking um, for managers. And also, you know, I've personally noticed on the due diligence side, when LPs are looking at our funds, that we've seen an increase in the way they are screening managers for ESG considerations. It really is great that, that super funds are involved here because it does allow, as you said, everyday Australians to have this access. And, that, and that's often... Probably one of the things I hear the most is is retail investors wanting to have an opportunity to invest in impact. And obviously, VC can be very exciting, but very difficult to make it accessible to, to investors that only have small parcels to commit. Do you see sort of any other, are there any other avenues for retail investors to access VC funds? Is there anything that you hope is sort of on the way? There's all the talk about crowdfunding and access that way. We actually launched a crowdfunding platform called Venture Crowd, which we actually used and we grew out of the desire and that mission to democratise access to investments that institutional investors traditionally would have closed doors access to. So I I do believe in the crowdfunding model. I'd like to see more democratised access to startups themselves because that is a difficult space just because of the credibility of investors. So I like the idea of having vetted platforms. I think there's a lot of noise in the space. So just making it safe for retail investors is really important. They may not have the same training as a sophisticated investor would. So I think making sure that not only providing the access to opportunities, but also bringing them along the journey of learning too about how to protect themselves in that process. So if we can manage both at the same time and make sure we're ethical and responsible in democratizing access, then hopefully we can try to scale participation and, and funds into these very important issue areas and to move the needle for the, the sustainable development goals. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Not just sort of passing the buck and saying, oh, you know, it can only be sophisticated investors that have the chops to do this. It's like, well, let's try and find a solution to that, right? And then let's build a platform where people can sort of prove their their skill set and their experience and, and we can go from there. So yeah, I hope that should give people some hope. But look, let's shift to Artesian's impact report. Is it your first impact report? It is. It's our inaugural impact report, which we are very proud of. Well, that's right. You led the process. You and I actually had a chance to, to sort of discuss the communications approach when, when you were still planning it. 
You're now on the other side. I'd love to hear about the process. Was it difficult to articulate and write down all of these very ephemeral ideas? You know, you're so close to this this stuff and to actually have to be limited to sort of 20 pages and get it down, it can be very difficult. How did you find it all? Well, first of all, I I, I ended up becoming 70 pages <laughs> from well, the 20. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, so yeah, that tells you a little bit about how much content we were trying to synthesize. I felt like I was giving birth because it was a nine-month process growing something from nothing. And we started with um, a blank sheet of paper. And of course, we're looking to other examples in the market of what we thought were good ways to be thinking about measurement and impact within their own organizations. But at the end of the day, we just had to dig deep and ask ourselves what really mattered to us and what were we doing because we cared. And that's how we ended up with our key thematics, which were creating a sustainable future, advancing gender equity. And of course, as we've discussed on this podcast, active forward-looking engagement. Very good. Very good. And at the end of it, you know, these things can be cathartic. Was there was there any key insights that you came to at the end of the process that you may not have sort of realized like, oh, hang on, that's what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. Even the different themes that came out, we really only pinned them down at the very end of the process Mm. because it was just collecting all of the information from all the different moving parts of Artesian and then categorizing and making sense of it all. Another thing that I learned throughout the process was the importance of bringing everyone along on this journey. It went from being, you know, my project to our project in a committee and then to, you know, this is an artesian-wide initiative in one asset class to actually everybody's involved in impact and everyone should be involved. And that's why we've tried to really capture the impact voices of the firm in back office, front office, VC, fixed income, even stakeholders and partners are in there as well in terms of our accelerant VC partners for VC. And so I guess what I learned through that process of writing this, it was more like a philosophical realization of someone who is in impact work, who when they try to make sure that they're using their career to contribute, they are bringing everybody along with them and the power of what that can do when you can involve people in the journey and you can reward them and highlight them and showcase them and put them in the spotlight so that they themselves can see how impactful their work is. Just a big realization I had while I was working on it and it just drove home things that I've been thinking about in my impact work more broadly, uh, even outside Artesian in, in, our, you know, in the women's nonprofit that I'm working on, G-Syndicate, or in the stakeholder engagement things that we're doing outside as well. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the different stakeholder groups that you were dealing with there, and that's just sort of internally. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the definitions of impact investment. How do you feel this term impact investment is being defined nowadays? Did you feel it morphed? I mean, you would have probably had to explain yourself thousands of time talking to different people. Where do you see it being at the moment? That's a good meaty question. (laughs) When I first started and looking at this space, I thought impact investing was synonymous with all responsible investing, which as you and I both know, it is not. There's a lot of layers to this conversation. So if I was to explain this and, you know, take a little step back for your audience, responsible investing sits at the top as the umbrella 
And then if you see it as a you know continuum or a spectrum from just traditional investing with no overlays in impact or industry on one side, and then on the other side sits pure philanthropy, impact investing sort of sits closer to the philanthropy side where you are investing, but also contributing with intention to a positive social or environmental outcome. So how that's changed since I've been in the field, which, you know, very candidly, has not been very long. It's only been probably four or five years. It went from being a, this is a step up from philanthropy where we don't lose money or we get concessional returns to, you know, in the middle of that continuum or that spectrum. So we're trying as an industry to get investors to understand that you do not have to sacrifice returns or any risk return metrics that are important to you as an investor for impact. Impact and social and environmental outcomes can be achieved while also achieving all of your goals from a financial and risk perspective. And so that's where I think we are going or where I'd like to see it go. And when we talk about it as a firm, we absolutely explain it that way. And that's our approach is that we believe that the only way to scale impact investment strategies is to make sure that the financial business case is sound and you know data backed and we've actually done the work to make sure we have high conviction from a uh, investment and risk perspective yeah there's a real communication skill there and you clearly have it you also have a lot of technical skills in the vc space it's important in valuing companies and advising them but there's another skill you have and that's in empathizing at a very human level And I think that that's become important to you in mentoring and growing the startup founders you work with. I'd just love to to dig into that in a little bit about the unique nature of VC investing, where you're working with often younger people, an aspiration that's quite long-term and that a lot of the time it's not technical difficulties they've got to overcome, it's sort of personal issues of confidence and and driving forward. So how do you you sort of feel, I guess, about your own skill set and importance of empathy? That's so important in all aspects of investing in business, I would say. I believe that the future of business models, the future of investing needs to incorporate empathy because we're now at a very unique time in history. We've seen it through the pandemic. We've seen it through all of the racial justice, social issues that have been popping up in the last year or two. It's really shining a light on how broken our systems are and how we have to change as a world and how we have to put our heads together to try to come up with new ways of doing things. And so we talk about the importance of that within mentoring startups and, you know, working on new ideas. The reason why empathy is so important if you're a VC investor or a startup investor is because you have to understand what it's like when you're visioneering, you know, something from nothing. It's so scary. You're having to believe something that no one else can see. And especially if you're fundraising, you have to have 99 out of 100 people tell you that your idea sucks and that it's not going to go anywhere. And you still have to fight the good fight every day. So, so much of being a mentor to these brave CEOs, these brave founders, is the emotional buttress you can provide for someone, the cheerleader in the corner to say, keep going. You know, it's okay that you don't know. You don't know what the answer is or where you're going to be in three years or you haven't figured out your business model. It's okay. Keep going. And I find this is so important and I care so deeply about it that I even started a CEO coaching practice just so I could do that with no other agenda on the table, just to be in their corner of the room, not as an investor, not as a board member or an advisor, purely as a coach 
And that's how much I believe in the process for the early stages of founding a company. Well, that's it. And it's not just startup founders, you know, that have limiting beliefs and that they struggle with imposter syndrome. You know, I think we all do. We all have bosses. We all have issues with confidence. You know, you've got this skill set as a coach, so I might put you on the spot here. Is there one core little mindset shift that you could offer our listeners when they do find themselves, you know, questioning their own abilities? They sort of know that they could do it, but there's something holding them back. They probably know that it's just themselves rather than than technical ability. Is, is there something you could offer the listeners? I think you did a good job just then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think with all of the coaching that I've done, I've definitely noticed a pattern in, you know, uncapping your human potential. And the most important thing to do when you hit that roadblock, and we talk specifically about building something new or trying to get that project deadline done or raise your fund or whatever it is that you need to do, when you hit that roadblock and you procrastinate or you start to feel your motivation waning or you feel like you want to give up, make sure you're dealing with the right beast. What I've noticed with coaching in the patterns is that people come to me with so many different problems. I can't scale my business or my relationship is breaking down or I've got health issues or whatever it is that they're coming to me with. If you peel back the layers and you go back to the core, usually there's some kind of storyline of I'm not good enough in some capacity. And so just make sure you're doing the work to lean into that uncomfortable feeling so that you can figure out what's really holding you back. And you're not just dealing with some symptom and uh, ignoring the root cause. So I, I find that can end up in these patterns where, you know, you have these upper limit problems or caps on your success of how much you can receive as a person. So just make sure you are doing the work, leaning into that uncomfortable feeling and, and just staring the beast straight in the face. Very good. Very good. And so difficult, isn't it, to look internally and yeah face yourself and ask yourself those hard questions and look I think it's taken me a long time but to me the the biggest realization was hiring the experts you know I've worked for myself for a long time and you just need an outsider you just need someone else to look in kind of just to call out your own bullshit really and and to ask you the tough questions so yeah thank you for that I think that's really valuable but we don't want to get too deep. Well, we do. That was really great. But we also want to, want to keep, keep going along and understand your VC journey and, and what Artesian are doing. And you mentioned She Syndicate. And I think that really ties back to this broader space. But anyway, tell us a bit about She Syndicate. What's it all about? Yeah, sure. So She Syndicate is a women's economic empowerment nonprofit that we founded as a firm. And what we are focused on is making sure that we live in a world where all women and girls can fulfill their human potential. So the way we are doing that is we focus on educating, mentoring and advocating the next generation of leaders, whether they be entrepreneurs, investors, directors or senior executives in corporations. We want to make sure that they feel emboldened and empowered as equal participants within the economy, but also as decision makers in society and as catalysts for change within their communities. And so we have borrowed from our experience on the innovation side or innovation, incubation and acceleration in VC. We've actually built our own impact innovation version of that to try to tackle the global economic gender gap, which I'm not sure if you've seen in the World Economic Forum's 2021 
Global Gender Gap Report is reported to be 267 years. Mm. And so, you know, I've got two nieces aged one and five, and they're growing up in a world where they will not see parity within their lifetimes and nor will their children. So in terms of picking, you know, the problem within gender equality that we specifically wanted to target, it was a no-brainer for us. Yeah, and look, you know, it's such an intractable problem. And, you know, you had your start as a founder, you moved into VC investing, very male dominated industries. Did you face, you know, these similar challenges yourself? And is She Syndicate something you would have benefited from, you know, had you had access to it? Absolutely. Still struggle with it as a woman, but also as a diverse leader, because my parents were actually refugees from East Timor. So I grew up as a first generation immigrant household. And that does things to you, to your money story, to your work. I think there's a lot of first generation immigrant children who um, feel they have to earn their keep. It's very difficult for them to ask for pay rises or ask for promotions because of the stories that they've been telling themselves or that their families and their cultural backgrounds have been imprinting on them from a very young age. And so I guess when we think about the economic empowerment of women, it is really about trying to think about what are the stories that we're telling ourselves to hold ourselves back and how can we try to you know, lean in and stare the beast in the face to correct them and take ownership and responsibility for our own growth, but also tackle some of the systemic challenges that can prevent a woman from progressing through just because of the way the structures have been designed at, you know, from a corporate perspective or from a funding perspective. We know that less than 3% of VC funding actually goes to female founders, despite the fact that they have you know, the same businesses, same track records. They not only raise less money, they also receive lower valuations. So the problem itself is, you know, within the data, you can kind of see where that may be coming from. And so that's sort of where we we want to focus on as a firm and also from the perspective of the nonprofit. That's right. And sticking to being very pragmatic investors, it seems that backing female-led companies really is another, just another VC lens, right? It's an opportunity to identify opportunities that others have missed. Is that the way you guys see it? Exactly. So we have like a one-liner that we sort of throw around at the firm, which is that talent is equally distributed. So they're just as smart as anybody else, but opportunity is not. It's unevenly distributed. And so that means that not everybody has the same starting point. Not everybody has the same access to getting their ideas and pushing them out into the world. And so that's a excellent opportunity and excellent arbitrage actually to find companies who may be overlooked or undervalued by the market and to actually be that niche investor to come in and and see that value, which is what we do as a firm. We find arbitrage opportunities and relative value opportunities where we can add alpha and value for our investors. So a gender lens is the same way we see an ESG lens in that it will help us provide obviously better risk mitigation, but also compelling returns for our investors over the long term. Yeah, very good. Very good. I've really enjoyed this. I could keep talking about this stuff all day, but but I need to let you go. Before I do, I'd love to get a book recommendation. Is there anything you're reading in Sydney in lockdown, anything on your side table that you could recommend to people? My book recommendation is actually A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, just because we were talking about coaching. So definitely a book to pick up if you are trying to stay your beast in the face. (laughs) What was that one? A New Earth? A New Earth, correct. Oh, great. I haven't read it. All right. I'm straight into it. Any other personal development books that are really valuable? Another good book is Deep Work by Cal Newport. 
through lockdown right now, I think a lot of people have been talking to me about their struggle to stay focused and not be distracted while they're at home or, you know, don't have the routine of going into an office every day. So that's also a good one if you're trying to get through the motivation blues. Definitely, definitely pushing past uh, Zoom fatigue and, and getting some real work done. That's the challenge. Exactly. All right, Vicky, really appreciate that. Lots of great stuff there and lots to keep up with with Artesian going forward. So, uh, yeah, push for everybody to keep up to date on Artesian and, and check out that impact report. We get lots of those coming through, but that one's really engaging. So check it out. And Vicky, thank you. My absolute pleasure. 